0: All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Cutlass Podcast. In this episode, we're going to continue our exploration of Chapter 4 of the Chief Petty Officer's Guide. That chapter is titled Technical Management Skill, and it strives to provide insight and advice on how you can be a more effective manager and how Chief Petty Officers use the management process and navigate through that to get things done. Once the plan is set and resources are identified and organized, it's time to get the job done and execute the plan that we've laid out. It could be a procedure, it could be an evolution, and frankly, it could be the day-to-day operations that you're leading your uh, division or your team through. So it's in the phase now that we'll call directing or performing, sometimes it's called staffing or executing, that leaders will set and clearly communicate their expectations to the team for their performance. They're going to motivate team members towards accomplishing those goals and objectives. They'll state the consequences of non-work performance or non-performance. They're going to supervise in this phase. And then you're also going to work with your leadership skills to promote cooperation and teamwork. So leadership, like I said, leaders day-to-day supervise frequent evolutions. They supervise day-to-day operations, but they also supervise infrequent operations as well. Back with me to continue with this conversation is Fleet Master Chief James Honey. Jim, welcome back. Thanks for agreeing to do another episode with me. How are things going and are you ready to get to it?
1: Things are going great, Paul. Thanks again for having me on and yeah, I'm ready to get started as soon as you are. I enjoyed the conversation we had uh, last week, uh, and I look forward to the conversation we're going to have this week.
0: Yes, absolutely. So let's uh, – you and both you and I both, like we discussed in the last episode, um, I was in Naval Nuclear Power. You were boats and mate. Those are definitely communities that are involved in routine operations, day-to-day activities, but they also are involved with supervising and, and executing high-risk evolutions and maintenance items as well. Uh, so where I kind of wanted to start with this episode of directing is, you know, we, we talked about having the plan set, you've got your people trained, you got your resources organized and on station, you're ready to go. But the thing we know in our communities that we do is before you start to execute, you conduct a good pre-evolution brief or day-to-day you do a daily stand-up meeting or something like that to start to communicate to the team what's got to happen and why. So why are these kind of things important? And from your perspective, what goes into conducting a good pre-evolution brief?
1: Paul, I I would say going right back to our last discussion, when you're talking about developing the plan, that's what needs to go into the brief right there to begin with. You need need to be able to communicate the entire plan, the what, the when, the where, the how, the why, and the who's going to do all the different pieces of that plan. But I think also important is that opportunity that you take to identify uh, what some potential issues are going to be the solutions to those issues, how to recognize uh, when things are going wrong, and then more importantly, what we're going to do about it so that we don't have any risk uh, to the plan, to the mission, to the equipment, and especially you know to any of our people. We don't want anyone injured or, or any loss of life. And I think you lay it out pretty well in the CPO Guide on page 70. We talk about you know, what can go wrong, what are the real problems, are there any risks, You know, what are the causes. And what are the possibilities of those things that could go wrong?
0: Sometimes, you know, you huddle the team. Um, Sometimes that's on station, you know, for the day-to-day ops. That's where we're used to doing like quarters, right? You stand up every day. That's kind of a directing part, you know, when you talk about it. Because you're really, it's the plan of the day, the tasks and the time is organized. And now you're communicating the team who needs to do what, when. So the first thing to do is huddle your people, right? On station, I think is some of the best time. And that's normally where we're doing it for these more high-risk briefs. But things, uh, you know, if I went back and could rewrite page 70, one thing I should have put in there is in Nuke Power, we always started out with reviewing the roles and responsibilities of the team. Like here's who's in charge. Here's who's giving what orders here. Everyone knows what they're supposed to be doing. As you talk through the procedure, you kind of make sure that people understand what their role is in that evolution and on the team as you go through. You know, once we had covered it down, then we would open it up to this Q&A kind of process. Of what could go wrong during this? What is different today from the last time we did this evolution? We would brief lessons learned from the last time we did the evolution, like, hey, remember we had this happen or this kind of thing went wrong. Uh, and another question that I think is important for the leader of that evolution brief to discuss is when are we going to stop? And I'll talk to you a little bit about that when we go through, but these briefs are extremely important. I see utili- utility in them in a variety of applications. What would be your daily kind of quarters brief to your team? What kind of things did you do there? Just not a, a major evolution, but just kind of day-to-day huddle of the team. What was, what was your brief there like?
1: Daily briefing would be much different than it would be for an evolution briefing because they're,
0: they're not as
1: high risk, they're not as complex. You're coming out in the morning, as you said, doing mushroom inspection, and, and, you're, and you're giving up your daily taskings. And, and for most of the part, those things are going to be well understood by everybody on the team and they're not complex, uh, and they're not high risk. And so you don't need a whole lot of feedback. i got a lot of trust in your ability to get these jobs done, so I can hand out those assignments and, and trust that you understand how to get them done. If there's any questions, then, then we can have a back and forth to clear any of that kind of stuff up. Much different than a high-risk evolution. So typically what we would do in that kind of a briefing is – all the individuals would brief me or the leadership on how they're going to conduct their portion of that evolution, so that there's not any misunderstanding of what all the steps are going to be going along. And I've heard it directly from the individual that's going to perform those steps how they're going to how they're going to walk us through that. That's kind of how I see the differences in like an evolution briefing, uh, you know, from a day to day operations.
0: We're already kind of flowing into that situational leadership thing again, right? As for that day-to-day brief, you're more finding yourself in that delegating, maybe coaching, support, like, hey, what do you need from me to get the things done? Vice the high-risk brief where you're starting to shift already, even with a highly competent team. If the risk is too high, you're going to probably hang your hat a little more on that directing piece. So uh, I look forward to hearing your insights on that. All right, so we got the team on station. We've done our brief. It's effective. Everyone's comfortable. We've allowed everyone to have their concerns addressed, and we're going to move on. As the leader, the manager, we're going to now throw on our supervisor hat. Uh, so let's get into this concept of supervision uh, and how to effectively supervise. So, and, and you can, again, if you want to go back to the morning, uh, more to a buoy or an unrep or whatever situation, that's always good to hear those perspectives. But let's talk about for one of those re- evolutions when you're in a supervisor position – how did you figure out? Like, where do you want to position yourself? What are you watching for? And how were you communicating with your team during that supervisory process,
1: Paul? I think it's interesting that you bring up situational leadership because there's going to be a lot more of that as we go through this answer as well. So, really, could be dependent on the evolution, my trust and confidence in the team, how, how risky I looked at that evolution. So if I put myself in a position that I'm going to have the most advantage for the greatest view, so I'm going to be able to take in the most information from that perspective easiest, so I might put myself in advantage uh, along those ways. I might position myself closest to the greatest risk, okay. where I think the evolution has got the greatest possibility of, of going poor, I, I put myself there, where the greatest position of friction are going to be, wherever I think thing might go wrong and I need to be able to react quickly uh, to that situation. Those might be things I do, or depending on what's going on, I, I might place myself in a position of greatest visibility to the team, so everyone else on the team can quickly see me, and it's easier for me then to communicate with everyone on the team. Uh, that That's almost like situational leadership about how I'm going to position myself, but I'm going to take a lot of things into consideration. You know, lots of times you'll see a Chief Bosomate during an underway replenishment you will know, we'll position themselves in a place where they're a little removed from the rig team, but they still have an ability to oversee every bit of that evolution from a good vantage point. Uh, so they're not down there in the middle of it. They're not putting their hands on anything. Uh, they're not going to touch anything. They're not giving any kind of direction. They're just standing up in a position. They can see everything, and they can kind of foresee any potential risks or problems that are arising with, you know, as that evolution is Is continuing on, Uh, but there could be other times where you know you as a supervisor have to be right in the middle of everything because just can't have any kind of uh, missteps. Uh, So you might be a lot closer to everything. Then again, maybe during a mooring evolution, you're going to be standing in a position of greatest visibility to the team so that your directions are usually heard and everybody can turn to you quickly, you know, for direction as, as you're moving along. And so it's all kind of situationally dependent, you know, supervision though it needs to be there to gain trust, and and then you need to be able to communicate throughout the evolution or throughout their operation uh, to fill in the gaps where there there might be any kind of misunderstandings. Whatever you need to do so that you can maintain trust and and confidence within that team. And I think, as you also write in the guidebook, further on, you're talking about watch teams and how to have watch team supervision and have accountability for that team, uh, watch team backup. I would offer though that that's the kind of trust that you need to have built into your teams, uh, well in advance of the evolution. Both you and your teams, you know, trust is a two way street. They got to trust you, and you got to trust them as a supervisor. And that that's the stuff that you need to have built in before you start on the evolution. Because the time, uh, once you're hitting an emergency moment, isn't the time to try and regain that trust. They need to be able to trust one another instinctively. Yeah, that you're going to make the right decisions.
0: So I think supervision is a skill set that you learn. How did you learn to be a good supervisor? Was it from modeling other people? It had to have been handed down for certain evolutions, right? And then in some of these evolutions, and many, frankly, there's multiple supervisors because our evolutions in the Navy are so complex. So I know flight deck operations, operate nuclear propulsion plant, doing well deck operations, all those have multiple supervisors. Where did you learn your supervision style from? Yeah, so certainly a lot of
1: it is just repeated behaviors that I observed from other supervisors, you know, throughout my Navy career. So, like you were saying, throughout an evolution, you kind of take it on the role of what you've seen in the past and what you think works well, uh, creates the most calmness and removes confusion uh, amongst the teams. And, and so, I've I've adapted and uh, taken on many of those kind of attributes, but also supervision and just your your day-to-day operations uh, I, I learned a lot uh, from observing others and what I found to be valuable and it, it could be as simple as uh, supervising sweepers not a very complicated uh, evolutions it's a very simple task yeah. but if it's important you need to go supervise it you need to be out and about enough so that you know that sailors understand that it's important to you if assignment is important enough for you to give it as a task to a sailor, then it's important enough for you to follow up. Otherwise, I'm not sure if a sailor will truly understand if what they're doing is important or not. And then, so I, I do believe that you need to come around. Again, it's about that trust issue, it's about having confidence in the team. I trust that you're going to take care of things, and you trust that I'm going to be around in case you have any problems or, or misunderstandings that I'm here to back you up. Yeah. Uh, and all the way around, I, and then it kind of comes back and forth again about confidence. You know, the more complicated the situation is, or the evolution, or the tasks that's been given at hand, the more often I might come around until I've got a good sense that you understand what I've I've asked you to get done. Uh, once I've understood that, I got a lot of trust in you, I don't have to come around as often. I can I can parse up that time to other evolutions and other tasks that I've handed out that do require a little bit more of my time. Whatever is required. I think, you know, to maintain that level of confidence in one another of the team.
0: Sometimes your presence just matters, right? And sometimes you may not have to directly supervise, right? You might be in that delegating coaching phase, but sometimes just being there shows that you care, you're interested. uh, And I think sometimes people undervalue that, right? Especially when they are in the delegating phase. Don't put yourself in a position where you stay out completely, right? Be there because it's also an opportunity Go to another episode here with reward power, right? Your presence there and be able to watch people do what they do, and just ask them, like, "Hey, what are you doing?" or "How do you get that done?" That looks really good. That doesn't mean you don't trust them. You're giving them an opportunity to explain what they're doing and demonstrate some pride in what they're in the work and the job they're doing, and in turn, that actually is a form of praise and reward power.
1: And, and I think that you know you should come around and, and recognize diligence and uh, the good hard work. Uh, if, if nothing else, it gives you an opportunity to come around and interact with sailors and just have conversations with them from time to time. It's, you know, I understand there's a fine line between uh, supervision and caring and micromanaging, but just getting around and talking with people, you don't have to, you know, nickel and dime about every little thing, but just be involved to a point where they know you care.
0: Yeah. Uh, and they know that
1: you're, like you said, present and that you're relevant to the conversation.
0: So any, any no-nos you would offer to the listeners on supervision?
1: Yeah, so certainly as we just said, you know, don't make yourself irrelevant. You know, you, you can't decide that you're gonna supervise something after the fact that it's already done and now I'm gonna come back and check everything out. You know, yeah. there, there's there's some times where that works, but if if you're not around all day long and that you want to show up at knockoff time and now I wanna pull up on all your work, you know that, that's just that's a poor form. Yeah. Uh but sailors will not respond very well to that. You know, throughout the day, get around there and help them find missteps along the way. When you show up at the last minute and now want to critique everything, and it really does not make sailors feel very satisfactory. So that's one. And then when you are around, actually do hold people accountable. If you do find things wrong, say something about it and and correct the problem. And if you find things right, then also hold them accountable and give the proper rewards where necessary.
0: Absolutely. And something you just touched on a little bit earlier before that, um, that really resonates with me. So in Naval Nuclear Power, we really rely on these watchstanding principles. You touched on one. So when I was supervising, it wasn't just the evolution and the execution of the steps. I was also looking for these behaviors in my team that I knew were important to ensuring the evolution went up. So procedural (laughs) compliance, right? So as I walked around, not just were they following, you know, was the book out and visible, or the procedure, but were they actually following it and referring to it? And with a caveat, during you know during a crisis or a casualty action, we were always taught, hey, take your immediate actions, your controlling actions first, and then you know those things should be memorized, you should be able to execute those from your training. But once you got stabilized, then you get to the procedure, and you get yourself back to that that piece of steadiness, I guess I would call it, uh, by following the procedure. Formal communication was another one, right? Face to face communication, proper formal orders back and forth with acknowledged, you know, repeat backs and those kind of things. That was another thing. Ideally, face to face, but as we know, our evolutions require teams to be dispersed around. So sometimes you can communicate on a phone or with a walkie talkie or a hydra or something like that, but keep the communications formal. That was another thing I was looking for. That concept of watch team backup, right? So do I know everyone's watching everyone and backing them up? And that they have the ability to come in and anyone can call someone else out for non-compliance to procedure or when they think things going wrong. That was another thing. And then this concept of do I have a questioning attitude built into my team where people feel they can question, again, the process and offer their feedback when they need to. Were those kind of things formally introduced in the Boats and Mate community or is that something you kind of did but it wasn't just formally structured?
1: No, so I would say that they weren't formally introduced. These were things that you just were introduced to informally, uh, and you just learned them as you went along. And some of these things were not. Questioning attitude was not something that was encouraged uh, or accepted as I was coming up in the day. Right. That was something that was definitely discouraged. But I learned as I was coming up, and it was something that I did encourage. I, I still value working with people uh, that are going to question things that help make us better. I, I have always appreciated work, working with folks that I, as I describe it, have a little swagger. They have a little bit of attitude about themselves, some moxie. You know, they're willing to get in there and mix it up, and they're not just going to do it just because I said they're. You know, they're, they're not just going to follow things and, and put a check in the box. They, they're wanting to understand things. They want to. They want to mix it up and make things better. I, I appreciate. You know, working with folks like that, and that was definitely one of them that wasn't something that was encouraged. The others, I think, were all encouraged informally, and but I think they're extremely important as you described them.
0: Oh, uh, I'll tell you, to, naval nuclear power was tough, but those watchstanding principles, I was able to take them. You know, after I went into the command ashie program, and really translate those into a variety of settings, not just on operational units, but on flagstaffs as well. That's why I specifically wrote those. I think it's about one twenty, 120, page one twenty-seven to one twenty-nine. There's a section I wrote in leading watch teams, uh, so I would encourage the listeners to check that out and give that some reflection as well. So, all right, let's uh, move on. So, in a prior episode, not just with the one I did with Rick Straney with the EOD um, experience in combat, but I've touched on this a couple times. Master James Parlier when he talked about you know the USS Cole bombing but this concept of situational leadership and knowing how to move from direct approaches to delegating. And I think that's one of the the challenges with supervising, right? Is finding that balance between supervising too much and getting into micromanagement and supervising too little and introducing too much risk or an attitude of complacency to your team from your perspective. So I wanted to get your thoughts on how do you manage this balance of supervising too much and too little and the concept of in, in these evolutions, when you've personally had a shift from maybe delegating to directing or back and forth. Uh, and what goes into your thought process that our listeners could learn from?
1: To begin with, Paul, I've I, I listened to that episode. I thought that was an excellent episode, that cool. conversation between you and Rick Straney. Uh, you know, you even you out there with the task force in Guam that, that I got tremendous respect for and always enjoy my conversations with him. Uh, that was an excellent episode. Uh, much of what Rick described to me was about confidence, confidence in the team as well as confidence in the leader. And I think lot oftentimes uh, with situational leadership, uh, that that's what we're considering when we're deciding which you know leadership style we're going to use. I don't think that we're always consciously deciding that this team is mature, that they're capable, and that they're committed. I, I think lots of times we. we quickly make a decision about is our trust and confidence in that. Uh, and that's why you end up lots of times with with people that can't get themselves out of, you know, the directing style of leadership, uh, as Rick described, it, be in the hammer. Yeah. Because uh, they're not really consciously making a decision about their about their team. They're really just making an unconscious decision about themselves. And you need to, you know, consciously look at your teams and assess your Trust and confidence in them, and, and then I think you'll hustle. You know, as, as it was discussed in in, in Rick's episode with you, uh, you know, talking about situational followership. You know, how well do, does your team trust and have confidence in you and are willing to follow you? And you need to work on those things and and, and continue to make sure you have that team. And, and that happens with how you supervise all the time. Uh, so you're continuously. Assessing yourself and your team and how you're going to supervise them so that, that you are building that trust and confidence in one another. And I, and I think that if you're going to have subconsciously making the right decisions on your leadership style, then you're going to have to have developed some conscious efforts into, and thoughts into why you're doing what you're doing. And again, as I said earlier, uh, trust is a two way street and it's something that you're going to have to work on and build toward. You're going to end up in a situation when things are going bad. Uh, that you're going to end up in an emergency and you're going to have to shift you know from a very passive leadership style or or delegating leadership style to maybe a very directive leadership style and that's not the time where you need your watch teams questioning your decisions at the same time you might you might jump into a directing style way too quickly if you don't have trust in your team. If this is the first sign of something looking a little bit wrong, you might jump in there and really, kind of disrupt things. Where if you had a lot more trust and confidence, because you've been watching them really well, then, then you know that they can lead themselves out of a tough situation. And you need to you need to have that kind of confidence in each other.
0: I haven't done a an episode, and I, I have to on the actual influence tactics because there's certain tactics that go with these certain leadership styles, right? So if I'm directing, I'm usually using what we would call a legitimizing tactic where I'm using my position or I'm citing the procedure. And, and frankly, that's okay, right? So even in a high-risk evolution, uh, the, the world that you and I did, right, there's not a lot of, you know, when I'm starting up a reactor plan or, or in an emergency situation, there's not a lot of time to go, oh, well, hey, you know, we think we should do it a different way. No, it's the procedures are written. There's limits that we adhere to, right? Um, I'm going to lean on the procedure and procedural compliance all day in that. And there's times when you shift away, away from that or when you can. But definitely to your point about emergencies, that's one of the ones where stuff is in crisis, people are scared, people are confused. That's when you shift to that directing style and you rely on your training and you start giving firm direction and orders. And I want to touch on that a bit. Let's get into this concept of... Giving orders and giving direction, right? So in the military, people would say, hey, it's, you know, that's something you do all the time, giving an order. But there's a way to give orders and direction to your team. Yeah, you know, I think when you're an older supervisor or more experienced, you know how to give orders and direction. I ho- Hopefully, you've developed good skills with that. You're not just a jerk about it and scaring people into doing what you want them to do. But for a young developing supervisor, what advice would you give to them on how to give direction and orders?
1: Again, and I'm going to sound like a broken record, here, but I'm going to talk about it again. Uh, about trust. Your ability to give orders is going to be based a lot on your confidence in those sailors being able to execute that mission and understanding what that risks are, whether the risks are to mission accomplishment, to life, risk to equipment, whatever the risks are, your level of supervising and, and direction uh, is going to be largely proportionate to what that risk is and but at the same time those sailors that you're directing or giving orders to also have risks and they also have concerns Uh, and they want to have trust that that you're giving them orders that are clear that don't put them at any greater risk or the team or that the mission's not going to be at greater risk you know that they also have confidence in you you know going back to you know those influence styles some of this is Based off of just because of your rank and and your position, you're legitimized. They just follow you because some of it is because you're going to be putting out the directive and this is the procedure. You read that word for word. And and, and a lot of this, though, is just they've worked with you enough. They've seen you in action and they know what you're going to tell them to do is going to be the right thing and it's going to see to their success.
0: All right. Yeah, I like that. You know, when you're getting into orders, other things. You know, I would offer is when you start telling people what to do, and you're in a position. Hopefully, you're in the position with the authority to give the order, right? To meet your responsibilities, and that's what we would call a lawful order. So we tell that a lot in the military, like, "Hey, make sure your orders are lawful." But I don't think yeah. we, we understand or explain that. Hey, a lawful order is one given with a person with the appropriate authority to execute the responsibilities of the job description. So. Um, that's one thing. And I think there's a way you present those, right? You got to be confident. You talk in a positive tone, right? So we were always taught, you know, you try to tell them what you want them to do, not necessarily don't do, right? Because that can become confusing. You try to, as I mentioned before, you try to give orders and direction face to face. So people can really, you can get that sense from their nonverbals that they understand and they can verbally respond to you. And then you always try to keep your orders and direction concise, right? To the point. Any other things you would offer there?
1: No, I think you hit it all on spot on. And yeah, you need to be a confident leader that has a credible plan that Sailor City is going to help see to their success. Um, I think that's that kind of sums it all up. All
0: right. I was going to talk about stopping the evolution or process, but I think I'm going to shift that to when we get into the controlling function, which will be our next episode. will be the third one in this, in this series, and I think that will wrap it up. But uh, any last thoughts or alibis on this performing, directing, supervising, function of management?
1: It was it was a really, really great conversation, Paul. Thank you for having me on. If there was anything I would offer, it's that, you know, as we kind of demonstrated here in our conversation, not from the beginning that we were going to get there, but just how well this all blends together uh, and how this is all important. They're not separate subjects. This is all stuff, you know, that all goes together with your leadership style. And I really enjoyed the conversation again.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a great point to finish on is, you know, this is really the phase where the hard skills of management blend with those soft skills of leadership, right? And It all comes together, right? Those are two, you know, you got to have both, right? And they blend together here. And this is where you're, the way you supervise and the way you shift through that situational leadership style and the tone you do it all has an impact on the success of the outcome that you're trying to achieve and on the attitude of your team. So when you're doing those things effectively, and taking on the advice and the tips we're giving. Uh, I think it just leads to successful outcomes and good attitudes in the team. So I've enjoyed this discussion again uh, and I look forward to us getting into the final episode on controlling. But until then, uh thanks again and be safe. Thank you, Paul. Cool. All right everyone, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Cutlass Podcast. As always I'm Paul Kingsbury. Work hard to keep that cutlass leadership sharp. Reflect and improve and take what you learn to become a sturdy, versatile incredible leader. makes a positive difference in your personal and professional life.